0: Physics World.
1: Hello and welcome to the Physics World Stories podcast. It's 50 years since Apollo 11 touched down on the moon's surface. And in this episode, we're going to look forward to a possible or even probable return to the moon. We'll hear about the people exploring lava tunnels in Hawaii to consider how we might use lava tunnels on the moon. We'll hear from scientists working on lidar to map out potential lunar landing sites, and we'll hear from Libby Jackson Head of Human Space Exploration at the UK Space Agency. I've spent the Apollo 11 anniversary at Jodrell Bank, the radio telescope observatory in Cheshire, England, and home to the Lovell Telescope, which tracked that first lunar landing 50 years ago. Jodrell Bank is home to the Blue Dot Festival, an annual event which celebrates music and science in equal measure In fact, you're as likely to find Kraftwerk or New Order running through their greatest hits on the main stage as you are to hear a lecture on time travel from Jim Al-Khalili. And as I wandered through the visitor centre, I bumped into Professor Monica Grady, Professor of Planetary and Space Science at the Open University. Monica's focus was on robotic missions.
0: In the future, we're going to go to Mars again and this time we're going to bring samples back. And I hope that will happen. NASA's first mission will go in 2020. That mission will collect the samples and then samples will be brought back. And we'll get them back by 2030-ish, I hope. Uh, 2032 maybe. So that's one set of things that I'm really uh, hoping for. Obviously the return to the moon. Um, uh, Some more lunar samples. Eventually, you know, we're going to have to go beyond Mars, look back to Europa. Uh, I know there's, NASA have, has a mission, Dragonfly, that's going to go to Titan to explore that further. And it's just like every time we go somewhere, you know, you get more questions than answers. And yeah. that particular community, so the Rosetta community, you know, desperate to go to another comet, and then the Mars community, so, and of course we've got the samples coming back from the asteroids, from Hayabusa 2 and the Cyrus rex so there's a huge amount of stuff to look forward to just in the ne- next decade. Yeah without starting thinking about human exploration. I mean, I know, you know, that Trump man has made some ridiculous suggestion that astronauts might be back on the moon by 2024, you know, therefore making a problem for NASA's carefully planned return to the moon, but I'm not entirely certain that... um, it's my forte talking about American politics.
1: Fair enough, fair <laughs> enough. And what are you most excited about out of all that?
0: Then? Samples coming back from Mars. Really? I've spent a lot of time studying Mars and Martian meteorites, and I'd really like to just, just be in, involved with the analysis of rocks that we know where it's come from, and yeah. being able to get an absolute age for, for different, different parts of Mars' um, history. Yeah. Really
1: Michaela Mosilova is an astrobiologist and director of the Hawaii Space Exploration Analog and Simulation, or Hi Seas. They run analog versions of missions to Mars and the Moon to test all aspects of future lunar or Martian missions. Michaela told me that their focus has shifted recently.
2: All of these missions are shorter duration because the, the primary focus is not, you know, psychological effects on the human- human participants anymore, it's a testing different technology and experiments during those missions, which don't necessarily require, you know, months on end for humans to be locked up on quote-unquote Mars or the moon, but instead, you know, we can test them in these simulated conditions on another planetary body, but uh, only several days or several weeks are necessary for that. My, my role is to organize, run those, but sometimes I'm asked to be actually part of the crew Um, So I also get to be part of missions. So, For example, I was commander of the mission with the European Space Agency earlier this year. So then I kind of have a dual role of, on one hand, making sure everything is going to be organized and working smoothly while I'm in mission. But then when I'm in the mission, you know, I'm on the moon or I'm wherever they put me. And I need to do that, you know, commit to that role fully.
1: What does the mission look like? The
2: short missions are focused on the moon. And this is because, you know, in reality, the moon is so much closer to the Earth than Mars. And, you know, with Mars, at the moment, we're talking about approximately eight months to just get there, approximately every two years when there's a, you know, the right window, uh, when the Earth and Mars aren't too far away from each other. And once you're on Mars, you're very much independent. There's a time delay of approximately 20 minutes each way, and there are times when it could take up to 45 minutes for you to get an answer from NASA, even if it was, you know, a critical, urgent situation. And you know, for those of you that have seen or read *The Martian*, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Where if something goes wrong, it's completely up to you on the surface of Mars and your team that you're there with to, to figure out a solution or to deal with it. But the Moon, luckily, you know, it's, it's so much closer. And the time delay there is only about three seconds on on average. or return a message. So it's almost like being able to talk real time. So it takes, you know, almost the same amount of time as on Earth to send and receive messages. Okay, you might not be able to have a live communication, but the delay doesn't really um, have a huge effect on your mission. People have been there before. So, you know, it's so much easier to kind of get us back there than it is to go to new territory like Mars that's so far away. Also, you don't have to take quite as many things with you because you can have more regular resupply missions to the Moon than to Mars. And there's a number of other logistical things which make missions to the Moon much simpler compared, compared to Mars. And uh, that's why our missions are kind of done in a different way. We're simulating actually being on the surface of the Moon. So, we've, you know, we're not simulating the journey there or back. We've basically arrived there on a quote-unquote quote, space shuttle. Uh, we've been, you know, left inside this small dome. It's about 12 meters in diameter, uh, but it has a pretty tall ceiling, which makes it much more comfortable uh, to be on the inside. So even though there's six of us in this tiny space, it, it feels like we have, you know, enough air debris sort of thing. Whereas, for example, when I did research at the Mars Desert Research Station a few years back, it has only eight meters in diameter. It's a cylinder, but it's a two-story uh, building, but the ceiling there is much lower and it definitely feels much more claustrophobic and even the sleeping quarters and everything. When you're inside, you know, it's kind of like you're on Earth. You don't have to wear a spacesuit. You can, you know, breathe and function normally. But to go outside into, uh, let's say, the, the lunar terrain, you have to put on a simulated spacesuit. There's an airlock where you go through a special protocol to actually, you know, put on the spacesuit and then go outside without... Uh, bringing dangerous outside uh, air and conditions into the inside of habitat, then you can only be outside in the spacesuit doing research for a certain amount of hours until you run out of your air supply and other needs.
1: The location of high seas is particularly pertinent for future missions. We're as certain as it is possible to be that both the Moon and Mars had volcanic activity on them in the past. And the lava tubes beneath the surface form a vital part of NASA's future plans for moon bases.
2: The station here in Hawaii is built on a volcano, Mauna Loa. It's approximately two and a half thousand metres high up. And it, the, the site was chosen for a number of reasons. But in particular, we know we're looking for a place that looks like the moon or Mars where the actual geological terrain around us is relevant to doing planetary science research. And that way, you know, when we go on these simulated uh, moonwalks or, or EVAs, as we call them, extravehicular activity, we're actually doing research relevant to you know, what would be happening on the moon. For example, like researching um, lava tubes and whether we could build habitats inside lava tubes, which is what um, is an idea for future lunar colonies is to actually use the existing natural lava tube there uh, to build uh, habitats in there and uh, create natural protection for the uh, humans rather than you know, building something on the surface of the moon with really thick walls to protect us from radiation and meteorite bombardment. And then on the other hand, for example, on Mars, even in this day and age, we think there might be some microbial life forms that could exist in these lava tubes. And just to explain, lava tubes are like uh, tunnels made by lava flow during an eruption. And uh, what happens is that you have hot lava flowing down slope, and uh, the outer layer reacts with air and water draining, and basically it solidifies, creates a thin kind of crust, protective crust for the lava. And once the hot lava flows through, it kind of just leaves this empty tunnel, and uh, there are all sorts of tunnels all over, um, you know, volcanic environment, whether here on this island, the big island of Hawaii or on the moon or Mars. And so when we go and do research, you know, we're re- literally focusing on things relevant to being able to do research on
1: the moon or Mars. You're going into lava tunnels on the ma- volcano in Hawaii.
2: Yes, exactly. So okay. it, it's uh, one of the big highlights of, of the missions here is that there's a whole network of lava tunnels uh, all around the, the research station or the high sea station. So we do spend a lot of the time on EVAs actually trying to find new lava tunnels, find ways to actually enter them because it's very difficult to get inside with a spacesuit at times, yeah. and then actually even moving around them. So we, we've added all sorts of knee protection and arm protection things to the spacesuit because these lava environments can actually be very tricky to work in. Uh, they're rather sharp, and and sometimes it can actually be dangerous. So it, um, it's difficult to do missions there, and that's kind of part of the challenge. And as commander, I always have to kind of evaluate whether it's safe to go to certain places because, again, in um, a real-life situation on another planet, if something bad were to happen, we first have to treat it as if, you know, we're, on the moon, what are we going to do? How are we going to get this person back to the habitat even though they're injured? How are we going to treat them? But of course, if it would be a life or death situation, then we would have to call emergency services. But as far as we can, we would try and treat it properly and be inside the simulation.
1: The lava tunnels could provide a real opportunity for lunar exploration. For
2: for so long, we've thought about building habitats on the surface. You know, when you see all these pictures of these domes or whatever other kind of buildings you know in the red martian terrain for example or even on the moon but in reality it would just be so much more difficult to have to build something like that rather than you know for example use naturally made things like lava tunnels for natural protection inside of which you then you can build a habitat that doesn't have super thick walls that you know has other things that you could bring with you to Mars and focus on that rather than focusing on that, you know, simple technology of how to build something thick and (laughs) protective enough for the humans. And, you know, there were even ideas of like, drilling things underground or whatever, for example, for Mars, but we have all these natural places that are already, you know, there uh, because there used to be volcanic activity or various other things that created these spaces underground then why not use that? And, and so the sh- focus has shifted a lot and more and more researchers around the world think that actually, yes, we should use these underground, you know, pre-existing spaces uh, to build future colonies rather than, you know, trying to reinvent the wheel and build things on the surface, which is gonna be very complicated for everyone.
1: Can you walk through them or do you have to crawl
2: through? It depends, some of them are tiny, but good enough to collect samples and some of them are huge and you could actually live there. I was um, helping a geochemist collect some biological residue that microbes leave um, inside lava tubes. And then they, again, kind of study what kind of uh, microbes probably left that and if we could find similar biomarkers on Mars or the moon or et cetera. And so I was helping him collect these samples and we were literally trying to find as many lava tubes and tunnels as possible to collect samples for him. And at one point I find this like really small cave type of thing. So we go inside and we collect samples for him and we're about to leave. And as he was like kind of getting ready to go we accidentally kicked into a small rock. And the rock kind of like tumbled into this dark area on the corner of this little mini cave we were in. And he's like, huh, the rock didn't hit anything. Like I didn't hear a sound. So it kind of looks around and actually what we looked like just a shadowy place was a very steep entrance into what turned out to be a huge network of lava tunnels underground. <laughs> and mm-hmm. we would have had no idea if you didn't accidentally, you know, kick that rock. Mm-hmm. And so we kind of descended into it. And it was very narrow, like we could barely fit in there with all our spacesuits on. And then once we went inside, there were parts where, you know, we could actually build habitat in there, like you know, really tall ceilings, at least four meters or so, um, pretty wide space. But then suddenly there were parts where we were crawling or actually like lying on the ground and decided, okay, we can't go any further, let's turn around. And we spent hours underground, just trying to map this crazy lava tunnel network.
1: Do we have an idea of how big they are on Mars or the moon?
2: From kind of, you know, indirect data, it looks like it could be a similar thing. You could, Because we, we see these so-called skylights. So they're kind of windows into the underground. So when you would have, for example, a lava tunnel and part of the ceiling would collapse, it created a hole for which you can kind of look underground. And we see a lot of those on Mars. And those indicate that these lava tunnels could actually be pretty extensive. And the moon as well, actually, they've they've actually mapped, I think, at least 200 or so of these lava tunnels there. And I think they're all also of different shapes and sizes. That's why we keep on talking about actually being able to use them um, as a shelter for human habitats.
1: If you look for Michaela Masilova online, you'll find that she's described as an astrobiologist and a marzenaut. Again, there's been a recent shift.
2: You know, that has been my pro- uh, primary focus for many years until last year. And, you know, I, I always joke that when I worked for NASA, when people would ask, oh, so when are we going to Mars? Uh, I, they would be like, oh, in 30 years. But we've been saying this for 30 years. You know, <laughs> it's like they it's always being postponed because it's mostly linked to government and in need of a lot of money. So, you know, whenever there's a shift in that, NASA's hands are a bit tight and, and they have to focus on whatever basically the current administration tells them to. Uh, and other space agencies around the world don't quite have such ambitious plans yet. And that's why I, I am kind of waiting for them all to join hands and the commercial sector and all that to actually get us to Mars at some point. But in the meantime, even the commercial sector has changed focus to the moon as well. It's becoming almost like a new space race of some sort where you have different companies that are like, yeah, well, you know, we'll get you to the moon. And then different companies that focus on just the landing part and uh, the technologies related to that. And you have different you know, space agencies, even NASA declared they're going to get humans back to the moon in 2024, which would be a miracle if that happens, but, you know, so be able to get humans to the moon again, that'd be great. If it all continues in this way, you know, and competition might finally spur things to happen, we would be able to uh, get back to the moon in the next decade or so, which, which would be great. At least it would be a giant step for humans again, but it would help us get closer to Mars just simply by, you know, getting more and more entities involved in this kind of space race. Uh, All these technologies and experiments would be tested directly on the moon and most of them would be relevant in some way to getting humans to Mars one day. And so it's definitely a great thing that, um, you know, there is so much more interest for the moon again And, and the organization I work for, we're called the International Moon Base Alliance. Our goal is to kind of help put together all these major players that are interested in getting humans to the moon. And my boss, his dream is to get humans to the moon by 2030, which I think is a much more reasonable estimate than 2024. Gradually, we will actually want to shift to building a much bigger station, also here on the Big Island, also on the volcano Mauna Loa, where it would become almost like a prototype of the station he one day wants to build on the moon. So we would literally test all possible technologies and everything build a prototype moon base and then hopefully the same thing with upgrades on the moon in the near
1: future believe it or not i do do other things apart from making podcasts and back at jodrell bank i was performing my live show the lesser sun all about the stories and people that took humanity to the moon it's a comedy performance lecture with songs films and of course plenty of science at blue dot festival we were joined on stage by libby jackson Director of Human Spaceflight at the UK Space Agency. Here's a part of Libby's speech during that show.
3: When we look at what's coming up in the future, there's going to be these lunar gateways. We're going, say, oh, we're going to go back to the moon. We're going to put astronauts on the moon, and it's going to happen. It is going to happen, and it's going to happen in the coming decade or so. NASA
4: uh, have said they want to
3: put American or they want to put American boots on the moon by twenty twenty-four. Uh, that's a challenging objective. It's going to require a lot of funding. Um, before that statement got announced, there was a, a lot of work on, on international collaboration on the Lunar Gateway, and we are still expecting that to happen. It's going to be a, a very small space station. If you think of the International Space Station, well, that's huge. It's 100 meters by 100 meters. Uh, it's the size of a five-bedroom house. It's very spacious. The lunar gateway is going to look a little bit like the International Space Station, but it's going to be tiny. It's more like a one-bedroom studio flat. Um, And the astronauts are going to spend 30 to 60 days there um, researching what it's like to live and work out there. Because with the International Space Station, with all of us, we live in the confines of Earth, and the Earth's magnetic field, And that protects us from the solar wind and the cosmic radiation, which is barreling through space all the time. If you've seen the northern lights, not well, so lucky you've seen them in person already in the southern lights, but if you've seen them in photographs, when you see that greeny blue haze, that's the radiation spiraling down the magnetic poles, a bit like water, going down a, a bathtub and lighting up the sky. And as soon as you go out into deep space, that radiation is going to hit you and bombard you, and we need to learn how to deal with that. We need to learn how to deal with the isolation, and the lunar Gateway is going to help us do all of that. It's also going to help us provide the stepping stone to returning humans to the moon, and that's all about then learning how to go there and then we can go on to Mars. And as I said, this isn't just NASA. The UK um, will, I hope, be a part of it. It's my job to make sure that they are. At the end of this year, there's a big meeting uh, for the European Space Agency where all of the different member states come together and they decide and agree what ESA should do for the next few years and how much money they can spend. And that's where your taxpayers' money uh, that comes to the UK Space Agency then goes to the European Space Agency and we will say, yep, we want to be involved and the UK wants to be involved and we're hoping that we're going to be able to provide the telecommunications. That's how we talk to each other. The UK is really, really good at doing that, generally. Loads of you well, have been watching live sport, perhaps, over the summer, you will have been watching live images from around the world, and that happens. We're able to see that because of the satellites in space that relay these images, it's telecommunications. And the UK, as say, is really good. Over 40% of all the satellites up in space that do telecoms have their major parts made here in the UK. So when we see humans returning to the moon, when we see all that science data coming back, Hopefully, it's going to be because the UK is providing that then. We'll see this year what's, what's coming um, uh, when we make those decisions on it. So I have to be a bit careful, but it's my job to make sure that we do. It. And I mentioned that it's your taxpayer's I money. Mean, I'm going to just give you a figure, because so many people say, what's the point? And it's so expensive. Should we really be doing this? Well, it costs for each one of you £1. Band. One pound a year, that's it, out of your tax bill. It doesn't just do human exploration, it does robotic exploration, which covers what we do to send robots to Mars to go and see if there's signs of life. All the stuff that Beth's been talking about, all the concordities, we do so much. And all of it is about doing amazing science, developing technologies that help all of us here, and the brilliant inspiration that inspires so many young people and all of us to get excited about space. And you look at these images and you see why that is. So it's a really, really exciting time in human exploration. You're going to see humans going back to the moon. And when you do, remember that the UK is got a part of it. I'm going to mention one more thing, which I forgot, and then we will finish, which is to say, as well as the Gateway, we've got a mission that's going to the moon um, in the next few years. It's going to start looking at water to see if the poles are there. And the UK is developing key bits of that. We're developing the equipment called the LiDAR, which is going to use laser range finding to see where we should land, and the company that's building that is in the tent just down there. NPA, UK, they're next to the Mission Control, go and see them, they've got Space hardware. they'll tell you all about that, and we've got experiments that are being developed by the Open University, that are going to protect water. But suffice to say, there's loads and loads of stuff going on, and if you've got any interest in space or science, get involved and come and join the space Center.
1: I'll have my eyes on that meeting at the end of the year. And although the recent machinations at NASA might have thrown things into doubt, everyone I spoke to was very keen to keep the Lunar Gateway on track. And indeed, it would need to be in orbit around the moon before 2024, as it forms a key part of the Artemis mission, which would see NASA's astronauts return to the moon in 2024. I have no doubt that the UK's role is in safe hands with Libby Jackson and inspired by her speech I set off for that tent where I met Kerry Sands, Operation Director for MDA, the company responsible for the Lunar Resource LIDAR. So
4: it's a LIDAR which means it's a radar but using lasers instead of sound and we use it to build up a 3D map of whatever we pointed at. So for the Lunar Resource mission uh, we're going to do a scan at two kilometres build up a uh, a map of the terrain and use that to select the safest landing site. So we look for obstacles or slope uh, and try and pick the best place for the spacecraft to retarget to land. The spacecraft that's going on is Lunar Resource One, so it's a Russian lander going to the south pole of the Moon uh, to prospect for water. Uh, But the European Space Agency are providing the uh, autonomous landing system, pilots, and the LIDAR is part of that system. So it has a a laser inside, a pulsed laser that sends pulses of light out. Uh, We have a couple of scanning mirrors that direct those pulses of light across the surface in a scan pattern. Uh, We also adapt our scan pattern to compensate for the motion of the LiDAR so that we know exactly which way we're we're pointing. Uh, And we measure how long it takes for that pulse of light to come back to to the instrument. And then from that we can work out the distance which builds up a 3D map.
1: So it's kind of to avoid what Neil Armstrong had to do to get over that crater. Yes,
4: and also the South Pole of the Moon is a very hazardous terrain. It's very rocky, very slopey, lots of craters. It's more interesting scientifically, but it's harder to land on. So if you can build up a map of exactly where you're going and figure out where the best place is very quickly, then that's better. So this completes a scan in five seconds, so it's very fast.
1: Oh, (laughs) <laughs> yeah, that is fast. And, and why is it the Wiser South Pole more interesting scientifically?
4: Because the craters don't see any sunlight. So they're, they're very, very cold. So there's a lot of uh, volatiles trapped in the surface, like water and other, uh, and other ice volatiles. So it'll be laun- launched from the Baikonur Cosmodrome on a Soyuz rocket. OK. <laughs>
1: That's pretty exciting, right? It is
4: very exciting. Uh, and it's exciting that there's so much UK content between uh, us as part of the landing system and the Open University as part of the, uh, the Prosper Science Laboratory. Europe has not demonstrated landing technology on the Moon before. So this is the first time we will do that, uh, and the idea is that we this, this is the precursor to future missions. So uh, if we can find uh, if we if we have a safe way to land on the moon, and if we can find resources on the moon, then it's the next step to go and send people there and have a lunar base.
1: Just one of the reasons why the south pole of the moon is particularly interesting from a scientific point of view is that it could provide a key to how life began on Earth. Some believe that life could have been seeded by complex molecules in asteroids bombarding the earth and any pre-organic molecules preserved in the lunar ice at those poles may provide clues the absence of an atmosphere and plate tectonics means the moon can provide a frozen record of the earth's history this isn't the only interesting job kerry sands has had though
4: are you going to get to go to the launch not i mean in my experience working on the missions and i used to work in operations you never actually get to go to the. yeah <laughs> you're too busy doing other things You're yeah, yeah. <laughs> usually either in a control center or in a back room but, yeah. so what have you worked on before uh, i used to uh, work in the planning team for the international space station on the columbus module oh, so cool. in the control room out in munich it's actually where i met in Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. That was really interesting. Actually planning what the astronauts do on board. Yeah. So So what do they they,
1: do on board? Tell me about that.
4: uh, They do a lot of exercise, (laughs) a lot of experiments. It's so expensive to send people up onto the International Space Station, so you really want to maximise their time. So we plan it down to five-minute increments what they will do during the day. (laughs)
1: <laughs> and some of that is talking to schools and things. some of
4: that is talking to schools inspiring the next generation and some of that is exercising to make sure that you know the space environment doesn't degrade their their physiology and some of that is doing you know really weird and wonderful experiments
1: <laughs> there are some really exciting and fascinating missions and experiments going on and we've only had time to look at a few of them today The Trump administration's claims to put American boots on the moon again in 2024 was met with scepticism, to say the least, from everyone I spoke to. And the main hope seems to be that they don't derail the excellent work being done by the scientists. There's some irony in marking the 50th anniversary of Apollo with politicians hampering scientific exploration. What's for sure is that if that administration does wish to return to the moon by then, then they'll have to put their money where their mouth is. It requires a huge investment, and that's not something that NASA is really seeing. If that funding does come, then there's something really exciting there. If not, as we've heard, there's plenty of exciting science to look forward to in lunar exploration. And don't forget to pick up Physics World magazine this month, which is full of stories and features celebrating the Apollo 11 mission. And if you didn't listen to last month's episode... You could always go back and hear even more about the Apollo 11 mission and hear that interview I did with Alan Bean, the fourth man to walk on the moon. Next month, we'll be looking at climate emergencies and wondering what scientists can do to make their labs more sustainable. And thank you very much for listening. Physics World.